Uh, we've been chronicling the life of Joseph, and we have seen how this favored son of his dad, who was given a coat of many colors, uh, endured great harsh treatment uh, from uh, his brothers. That harsh treatment would culminate uh, in him being uh, beaten and abused. The coat that was given to him ripped off his back. He'd be thrown into a pit by his brothers who hated him because they knew something was special about him. They knew he had had dreams from God that he was going to be something great and that they would one day bow down to him. And at, at a point where it had just gotten too much, they wanted to rid themselves of Joseph once and for all. And they make a decision after throwing him into a pit uh, they sell him to a group of traders who would take Joseph as a slave into Egypt. Joseph would find himself in Egypt under uh, the oversight uh, of a master named Potiphar. Potiphar was the uh, chief of police, if you will, of Pharaoh's uh, police group in Egypt. And uh, he would be bought and brought into the house of Potiphar. And during that time as a slave, he would work up, if you will, the corporate ladder going from a household slave uh, to being the second in command of all that Potiphar had um, in his house. And he would do so because the Lord was with Joseph. And the Lord blessed the hands of Joseph in every way. Until, that is, uh, Potiphar's wife, or Mrs. Potiphar, if you will, begins to hit on Joseph. Joseph was a handsome man, a man that uh, was successful in so many ways, and that attracted Mrs. Potiphar uh, to hit on Joseph. Joseph, being a man of character and of godliness, rebuffs the advances of uh, Mrs. Potiphar. And as a result of her not getting what she wants, she screams and yells rape. And uh, as a result, Joseph is put in prison for a crime he did not commit. For 10 years, over 10 years, uh, Joseph would endure uh, an incarceration. Now, he wouldn't moan and groan. He wouldn't complain. But the Bible tells us that he would serve the warden of the prison very well. God was with him and everything that, that Joseph touched or had involvement with, with prospered. And during his time in the prison, he meets up with two very important prisoners. The cupbearer of Pharaoh and the baker of Pharaoh. These were guys that had close ties to the most powerful man in all of Egypt. And one day while they were all in prison, one evening in fact... The baker and the cupbearer had dreams, each of them having a different dream, and each of those dreams having an interpretation. Joseph hears about their dreams and interprets their dreams, one a very good dream and one, in fact, a nightmare. Let's deal with the nightmare first. The nightmare is of the baker. The baker has a dream where he, hears, where he sees uh, baskets of bread over his head, uh, birds coming and devouring all of the bread, and he says, what is this dream about? And Joseph tells the baker, in three days, Pharaoh is going to come and take you out of prison. But not for good, because he's going to take you out of prison. He's going to hang you. You're going to be killed for your crimes. And then, as he's enduring that nightmare, the baker is, the cupbearer then asks, well, here's my, here's my dream. And he begins to tell the dream, and it's about vineyards and grapes and cups overflowing with wine. And, and he says, what's the interpretation of this? And Joseph says it's a good interpretation. You're going to, three days from now, be let out of prison. You will be restored to your place as the cupbearer, standing next to uh, Pharaoh and serving him and having all of the joys of being that close to Pharaoh. A good interpretation and a bad one. 
was uh, the three days come about, one of the final things that Joseph says to the cupbearers, hey, remember me. Remember me when you stand before Pharaoh. Tell him that I've been brought here to Egypt as a slave. Tell him I'm in prison for a crime I didn't commit. Maybe Pharaoh might in his grace release me. But we're told that Joseph uh, is forgotten by the cupbearer for two years. That is, until Pharaoh, two years later, has a set of dreams. A set of dreams that none of the magicians and none of the wise men in all of Egypt are able to interpret. It's then that we are told that the cupbearer remembers Joseph. They go and they grab Joseph. He cleans himself up. He stands before uh, Pharaoh. Pharaoh says, I hear you can interpret dreams. He says, no, dreams and their interpretations are given by God, but tell me the dreams so that my God might interpret them. And Pharaoh begins to share the two dreams that he has. And the interpretation of those dreams uh, are that there are going to be uh, great years of harvest coming for the nation of Egypt. Seven of the most plentiful and bountiful uh, harvests are going to come in the next seven years. But before you get too far ahead of yourself, Pharaoh, recognize that at the end of those seven years, there will be seven years of the worst famine that Egypt will ever face. And the job now before you is, first of all, to believe the dreams as they come from God. And number two, to put someone in charge of seeing to it that a fifth of all the crops are collected during those seven years of bounty to be stored away for the seven years of famine that are going to come. Pharaoh believes the dreams to be from God and assigns Joseph the job of being the one who would administer all of the plans and building and and planting and reaping that would take place in those seven years. And at the end of those seven years, the famine would break out. And it would be, as God said, the worst famine that they had seen. And that famine would go far beyond Egypt. It would go even into the land of Canaan, where Joseph was from. That famine would cause Joseph's brothers to have to come all the way to Egypt looking for food. And they would come face to face, unknowingly, with the brother that they sold into slavery. Joseph would then recognize them right away. Even though they didn't recognize him, he knows who they are. And over the course of a couple chapters, we see test upon test that Joseph places his brothers in. A couple reasons why. Number one, so they might taste a little bit of some of the mistreatment that they bestowed upon Joseph. But two, the test was to see if that would soften their hearts and if they were truly repentant for the mistreatment that they had shown their brother some 20-some years beforehand. And what we begin to see is the softening of, of the hearts of Joseph's brothers. We see them now recognizing that the reason why they're facing such mistreatment in Egypt is as a way of punishment for what they did to their brother, Joseph. We see as they leave the first time from Egypt that they articulate, what is this thing that God is doing to us? They recognize God is having His way amongst their lives and bringing about a retribution for their sin. These trials and tests would culminate uh, in one final test. But before we get there this morning and see what I believe is the climax, if you will, of our story in Joseph, let me pray. Father God, we come before you. And we ask for your blessing on uh, the teaching of your word this morning. Lord, I pray that uh, as we listen and hear of this story, 
we'll be reminded of some of the words of Jesus. Words that remind us to forgive. To forgive as Christ has forgiven us. And I recognize that the issue and theme of forgiveness is not something that comes easy for us as human beings. We recognize that the gift of forgiveness must come from you and your spirit. So we ask that your spirit would descend upon us today and would allow us to look beyond the sins and infractions of others so that we might extend grace and mercy as Joseph did in the lives of his brothers. Let us extend that to the lives of others in our lives who have done us wrong so that they might see the work of God in our lives and might see the gospel lived out before them. Lord, we thank you that you've forgiven us, and now, Lord, empower us to forgive others. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Genesis 45 is a moment in time that Joseph and his brothers would never forget. For many of us, we live thousands of moments in time every week. This last week, you, you saw thousands upon thousands of seconds leave your life. You saw hundreds upon hundreds of minutes and hours go away, never to be thought of again. Myriads of things that you did, that, that you just did, in essence, without even knowing it. But there are those moments that are unforgettable. There are those moments that are so different than every other moment in life that you remember what you were feeling in that moment. You remember maybe what you were wearing or who you were with or, or, or the surroundings or circumstances around that moment. For some of our older folks who were old enough to remember this, let me just do a simple poll. Uh, how many of you remember some of our older saints? How many do you remember the moment that you heard uh, the story of John F. Kennedy being assassinated? Let's see a show of hands. You can't forget it. I remember as a, as a fifth grader, we were at school. It was a January uh, day, and it was a special day at our school. We were going to have an assembly where we were going to all go and, and watch something we had never done before as a school. We were going to watch a space shuttle take off. It was a special space shuttle. It was the Challenger that was going to have the first uh, science teacher ever to be an astronaut. And I remember who I was sitting next to on both sides of me. I remember where I was at. If you were to take me back to my old school, I could show you exactly where I was sitting. Why? Because that space shuttle wouldn't go very far before it would blow up. It was the first time I'd ever seen anything like that take place. That kind of tragedy. I had just watched a group of people lose their lives on broadcast television. I remember the, the teachers scurrying very quickly to turn off the TV and rustle us back to our rooms. I remember the announcement from our principal trying to explain what our little eyes had seen. I can never forget it. Of course, a new generation of people uh, can remember uh, that exact moment when the 9-11 events took place, the planes crashing into the World Trade Center. We remember those events as a nation. We remember because they're so different than any other experience that we've been a part of. Forever, those moments in time have been paused and recorded in our mind, never to be forgotten again. We have them as a nation, JFK's assassination, the Challenger explosion, the events of 9-11, and there's many others. But personally, we have them as well. Some are great. I remember seeing Amanda for the very first time. I tell people all the time, it was like this glow from heaven came down 
uh, into a classroom at Wabansi College. She said there was a glow about me, but it wasn't heavenly. I remember when I asked Amanda to marry me. I remember standing here uh, with Amanda and giving each other vows and commitments on our wedding day. I remember the birth of my three boys. And most recently, I remember sitting in a doctor's office with a handful of doctors coming in and a long doctor's appointment to tell my wife she had cancer. Those moments in time that we can't shake. And many of you have those moments as well. And Genesis 45 is one of those moments that everybody in the room would never forget what they were thinking, what they were wearing, what, what was going on around them, because it is the culmination, really, I believe, of their lives. Genesis 45 is when, for the first time in 20 years, the brothers are going to be revealed. Joseph, the brother they thought in many ways was probably dead. The brother that they had betrayed was alive, and his dream had come true. They were bowing down to him, because in fact, he was greater than they were. Our story goes like this. In Genesis 45, we're recorded the story by Moses and the scene in Egypt. And I want to walk through very quickly what's transpiring. We've got a lot uh, to do here in this uh, chapter, and Moses records the chapter for us. Now Moses has told us that at the beginning of Genesis 45, it brings to an end Joseph's examination of his brother's hearts. Joseph has been doing these tests, and the final test that Joseph has done is that he had had a test that his brothers needed to produce Benjamin, the brother that had stayed home during the first visit. And there had been this whole argument we see in chapters 43 and 44. Jacob's like, you guys got to be kidding me. I left you with Joseph, and he died. Now, I'm not going to give you Benjamin, because you guys are going to go off, and you're going to come back, and he's going to be dead. So you're not getting Joseph, or I'm sorry, J, uh, Benjamin, until the famine gets so severe that they need food again. And Jacob relents, and he says, fine, take Benjamin with you, and, uh, and then we can get some food and we can live. Well, Benjamin comes, and, and of course, Joseph is filled with so much joy to see his full brother, Benjamin. And, and what does he do? He creates a test surrounding Benjamin. He puts a cup, his own cup, into the sack of grain that Benjamin would carry home. And of course, in the process, he stops the brothers, and he says, you guys are thieves. You've stolen from me. And they're like, no, no, we haven't stolen. And he rips open each of the bags. And grain falls out of each of the bags, except when they get to Benjamin's. When he rips open the bag, grain falls out, and so does the cup. Then Joseph, being a wise man, grabs a hold of Benjamin. And he says, because of your treason, you're going to stay here. You're going to be put in prison. And the brothers respond in a way that shows that there's contrition, shows them that there's repentance beginning in their heart. They say, no, no, you can't keep Benjamin. He's the favored one of our father. If you take Benjamin, he will break the, that, that will break the heart of our father and we won't do it. And Judah, the guy that said, let's sell our brother into slavery for money, rises up and he says, listen, you take me instead of him. I will take his place. His life is more important than mine. And so you let Benjamin go and I will stay and I will pay the penalty of his sin. And it is there that Joseph 
affirms in his own mind, my brothers are sorry for what they've done. My brothers recognize the wrong because what they did is they sold a brother and let a brother die, if you will, for their behalf. And now they're willing to lay down their life for a brother's behalf. It's a total 180. And so Joseph sees the hearts being changed. And Joseph does something starting in chapter 45. It says, Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood behind him. Notice after this examination, Joseph's emotions overwhelmed him. He's overwhelmed. He could not control himself. He tells everybody in the room, uh, Go out from here. And he cries. He cries so loud that everyone heard in the household of Pharaoh, verse 2 says. Now, let me stop there for a moment, because we could read that and say, well, he cried a couple tears. You know, your Hallmark-type crying, right? But the commentators say, he cried so loudly that all of the palace could hear it. This was deep wailing and weeping. This was uh, something that was overflowing of emotions. Now, before you think that Joseph needs to turn his man card in, if you will, because he's just a crier, we need to recognize some things. Joseph has shown a stability with regards to his emotions through this entire time. The only time we hear of Joseph crying is when he's thrown into the pit. And who can blame him? Probably injured, probably crying for his life, Anybody, even the hardest of men, would recognize that that's probably a place that you cry for your life. But think of being brought into slavery. Moses never records that he's crying amidst his slaveholders. Nowhere does it say that after the accusation of Potiphar's wife, does he moan and groan and weep. It is here that Moses says that he breaks down, that he loses his control. I believe it was right and good from, for Joseph to do that. Now, I've got to be honest with you, I'm not much of a crier. I've cried, especially when I watch Rudy. Um, but crying doesn't come easy for me. But it, it does happen. But, but we have this tendency as non-criers to bestow upon our crying brethren that it's more spiritual that we don't cry. That is if we have more faith, Right? Look, I, I can stand strong amidst the, the harshest of, of times. And, and many of us might look down at our, our friends that cry a little more, that maybe are more, a little more emotional. I have a, a friend that uh, has a spouse that cries at almost everything. And, and we'll watch movies together, and I will always find the worst tear-jerking movie I can find because the, the poor gal just blubbers away. It's beautiful. Right? It just She's just bawling her eyes out and I'm laughing. I think it's the greatest thing in the world. But we as Christians get this idea. Uh, I did it in the first service and you probably some of you probably heard about it. I heard people in the parking lot talking to you coming into the second service. That we have this idea in America because the Four Seasons taught us this. That big girls don't cry. No, they don't cry. Right? Yeah, you don't get that's extra credit for you guys, right? This group over here has no idea what just happened to their pastor. Right? Big girls don't cry, and if big girls don't cry, big boys don't cry, right? That's hogwash. 
We see throughout the Bible that people cry. They cry in the good times and they cry in the bad times. We are told that Jesus Christ himself wept when looking at the tomb of Lazarus and seeing the heartbreak of his friends. We are told that that we can grieve the Holy Spirit in such a way. And so crying and grieving and weeping is altogether good for us in moments of time. And it's good because it, it shows our hearts. It, it shows the depth of the hurts and pains or the, or the great moments of joy in our lives. He wept. And all of Pharaoh's house heard it. He was overwhelmed by what was before him. He had seen the God's hand of providence being brought to fruition in his life. And it brought him to tears. So he tells the rest of the people in the room, I want you out. I only want the family, right? There are moments in our lives where family's got to have a conversation, where nobody else is involved. And we can speak freely as family members. And Joseph then exposes his true identity. He exposes his true identity. Pick up verse 3. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. And then he asked the question, is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer them, for they were dismayed at his presence. Uh, I used to watch Tom and Jerry as a kid, the, the car- cartoons. And I remember there were moments where something shocking would happen with Tom and Jerry, and Tom's mouth would fall to the floor. And I wonder if their jaws hit the floor when he said, I am Joseph. We don't know how he said it, but we know that he probably took off his royal garb, his headdress, if you will. I wonder if he wiped away the mascara that Egyptians in that day were known to wear. But probably the thing that shocked him was this royal figure before them began to speak Hebrew. Because we are told beforehand... That every time he spoke to them, there was an interpreter. An interpreter who had interpreted Egyptian, the Egyptian language from Joseph to the Hebrew brothers. So he announces in Hebrew, I'm Joseph. They are shocked. They're unable to speak. They could not answer them, for they were dismayed at his presence. That phrase, dismayed at his presence, in the Hebrew, literally is the shock that the shepherds felt in the countryside when the host of angels stood around them. Wow! What is happening? They're filled with fear. Now, had I been there, had I been Joseph, this is when my sinister laugh would overtake the room. (laughs) Right? For those that have older siblings who have harassed you for any amount of time, you're begging for this day, right? This last uh, week was a tough week for my youngest son, Luke. He's the youngest. 13, Noah, 11, Josh, and 8, Luke. It's tough to be an 8-year-old with two older brothers. And he came into my room yesterday and he said, Dad, I'm not happy. And Luke's always happy. Luke, why aren't you happy? It's no fun being the youngest. And ain't that the truth. 
My brothers aren't very nice to me, Dad. I said, well, think about this, Luke. One day they'll be elderly and you'll still be young. And that will be the time. And I said, what will happen then, Luke? They'll get it. We teach revenge in the Badal house. Please forgive us. No, any younger sibling who's endured harsh treatment from the brothers or sisters is understandable. But let's understand 22 years ago, whatever Luke has endured in the Badal house pales in comparison to what Joseph has endured. His brothers sold him into slavery. I mean, we threatened selling him to the to carnival people, right? But they did it. And he had endured harsh treatment as a result. What would happen as Joseph identified himself? Well, if it was me, I would have brought in the royal guard and I would have said, take him away. Because I'm an unforgiving guy. Because I struggle, like many of you, with forgiveness. But Joseph doesn't do that. Notice Joseph encourages his brothers. He encourages them. So verse 4, So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. Why would a royal figure say please? Because he's going back in some ways to being the youngest. And he invites them, and they came near, and he says, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into Egypt. Now don't be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, for God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and yet there are five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and a lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Well, let's stop there for a moment. He encourages them. Now, how does he encourage them? Number one, he invites them to draw near. What's their first reaction? Run away, right? Like, like a light to cockroaches. Just run for your life. Get out of the lights. But he says, listen, come close. You have nothing to fear. Come close. And I want you to recognize, I know internally you are struggling. You're struggling with guilt. And right away he takes away the guilt that they're struggling with. And he says, listen, you play a small part in the reason why I'm here in Egypt. God is really the main character in moving me to Egypt. So if you want to feel really, really sorry for yourself, if you want to blame yourself, don't. Because God is the key character in bringing me to this place. And then he says, tell me about my father. He says, listen, let's talk about a common thing that we have. And he takes them away from their sin to something that would bring a level of happiness in their life. Dad's okay. He's older now. His health may be starting to fail him a bit, but dad's alive. In some ways, it's as if Joseph kind of changes the subject not to let the brothers have to sit and wallow in their self-shame. How's our dad? He not only encourages them, but notice he expresses his love to them. Let's keep going in the story. Verse 9, hurry up and, and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph. We'll get to that next week, the whole thing that takes place with his dad. 
God has made me Lord of Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them after that his brothers talked with him when the report was heard in pharaoh's house joseph's brothers have come it pleased pharaoh and his servants and pharaoh said to joseph say to your brothers do this load your beast and go back to the land of canaan and take your father and your households and come to me and i'll give you the best of the land of egypt you shall eat the fat of the land And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this, take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. And the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Pharaoh, and gave him provisions for the journey. To each and all he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. Hint, hint. Why would he do that? One final test. A test that we don't think about very often, right? You see, we are easily convicted in times of need or in times of disaster. God, I need you. God, I'm willing to humble myself. If you get me out of this mess, Lord, if you come to my rescue, then I will surely do X, Y, and Z. But the greater test is when everything's going well for you, when success is all that you see, do you revert back to your old ways? So what does he do? He brings back the old insidious test of favoritism. And he gives his brother money. And he gives his brother's clothes. How are they going to treat Benjamin? How are they going to treat him? Will he come back and find out that Benjamin has been mistreated? Been abused? Maybe they won't sell him to slavery. They've learned that lesson. But might Benjamin come back with a black eye? And show, that, show Joseph that they haven't learned their lesson? He goes on. To his father he sent as follows, ten donkeys loaded with the good things of Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed he said, Do not quarrel on the way. Hmm. Their brother knows more about them than they wish he did. Don't fight. Don't mess with Benjamin. Don't point fingers at one another. Don't quarrel on the way. You have been shown forgiveness, mercy, and grace, and now likewise you should do the same. He encourages his brothers. He expresses his love towards his family and gives them all that we need. And we'll pick up that part of the story next week and what happens to Jacob when he hears the good news. But let's stop there for a moment. And I want you to notice that we have seen over and over again in the story of Joseph that he has shown us a picture of God in Christ Jesus, right? 
And I want you to notice that there is a picture of our own salvation in the saving of Joseph's brothers from the penalty that was due to them. Joseph, in his forgiveness, shows us a picture of God's forgiveness towards us sinners. Notice this and write these three things down. Number one, Joseph is a picture of God in that God is the initiator in love to us, towards us. Just as Joseph initiated love towards his brothers, so it is that God who initiates love towards us. It is not us who sought God, but God who sought us. It wasn't Joseph's brothers who sought out Joseph. It was Joseph's who sought out his brothers. It was not the brothers demonstrating their love towards Joseph, nor was it us demonstrating our love towards God. But Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrates His love for us in this, while we were still sinners... Haters of God, Christ died for us. They didn't initiate their love. They didn't demonstrate their love toward Joseph. But Joseph was demonstrating in each and every one of these tests a love for his brothers. And that's what God does for us. While we've gone astray, while we've done the litany of sins found in the catalog of Romans 1 and Romans 2, going our own way, It is God who shows His infinite love and mercy upon us when we would rather not have it at all. God is the initiator of love. Number two, just as Joseph did, God is moving in our lives even when we don't recognize it. The guys, the brothers, think that they're in front of this Egyptian leader who's never seen them before, who thinks them to be spies. But little do they know that God has been working through Joseph a set of tests and and opportunities for them to come to repentance. And likewise, in our own salvation story, if you have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ, then you recognize there was a whole manner of activities that took place that got you to the place that you said, Jesus, be my Savior. If I want to know in my own life, it would take a group of Christian missionaries, navigators from Colorado in the early 60s to get on fire for the Lord, teenagers who took a short-term mission trip to, of all places, Baghdad, Iraq. Those navigators from Colorado would lead my young father to the Lord, probably around 14 or 15 if I've got the story right. And my father would become on fire for the Lord in Iraq, move here to America, would marry my mom, and would raise three children in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Now, was my dad the only one? No, my mom had a huge impact in my life. I think of the Sunday school teachers. I think of the young girl in my Sunday school class at a church in Plano that said, I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And I said, what is that all about? I was only eight years of age. Dad, what does that mean? That she'll go to heaven and she won't go to hell. What does it mean that her sins are taken care of? And it was an August afternoon after church where I bowed the knee and accepted Christ as my Savior. But if I think 
that that moment in time happened right then and there, I don't give God any allowance of His providence of all the lives that He changed so that my life would one day be changed. You know, we do this thing called Ancestry.com. You see the commercials for it, right? And we want to know what our background is, what our ethnicity is. And so we start putting in and computing things. Well, I want you to know spiritually, you can do that as well. And you will be amazed to find out all that God did to save you from your sins. God has been at work long before you said, Jesus, save me. Number three, we see Joseph calls them to come close when they would have rather run away when we are found in our sin Jesus gives us an invitation come all who are weary and I will give you rest he invites us and many upon many will run away and want nothing to do with it but God continues to say come God continues to invite God continues to draw us close. And those that will allow themselves by the grace of God to draw close to Him, He will no wise cast away. You see, this story in Genesis 45 is a call to all unbelievers to come close to Jesus Christ so that He can save you from your sins. It's a reminder for those who have bowed the knee to Jesus Christ what manner of love God has shown us. By providing a way, not only through a son, but through the lives of myriads of individuals who brought us to a place of salvation. He loved. He was the initiator of that love, just as Joseph was. Now this whole story brings us to a theme of forgiveness. How could Joseph have forgiven his brothers in that way? Notice that this story of forgiveness reflects, it reflects a story that Jesus told. It reflects a story that Jesus told his followers. Turn in your Bible for a moment. We won't spend a lot of time there, but to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18. If you have a pew Bible, you can find our passage on page 823. Matthew chapter 18. Jesus tells the story. It goes like this. Well, what precipitates the story? Peter comes up and says to Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, no, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. In fact, an infinite amount of times your brother sins against you, you will forgive him in that many times. Infinity. You'll do it all the time. That's what you're called to do. And Jesus says, this is what my followers ought to do. And he tells this story. And it's a very memorable story. He says the following, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle his accounts with his servants. Sounds like Joseph, doesn't it? There's a correlation there. I don't know if that's exactly what Jesus is thinking, but we've got someone in authority dealing with servants and a debt they owe. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. That is more money than you could ever put together in a lifetime. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had so that payment might be made. So the servant fell on his knees imploring him, have patience with me, I will pay you everything. And out of pity for the servant, the master released him and forgave him the debts. 
But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii, a very small amount. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, I will pay you. But he refused and went and put that other servant in prison until he should pay the debts. When the fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all your debt that you pleaded with me to forgive. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger his, mercy, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all of his debt. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your hearts. We have it exhibited in Genesis 45 what forgiveness looks like. Instead of punishment, grace. Instead of wrath, mercy. Instead of prison, a palace. Joseph shows us that. Jesus reiterates that by telling us we ought to forgive. And here, are, here is why. Three principles. Number one, we're all offenders. We're all offenders. First of all, we have all sinned against God. And we owe the greatest debt to God. We're all felons. If we were to do a background check, there would be red flags on all of us. Because we've sinned against God. The Bible tells us there is none righteous, not even one. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're all offenders. We've all done wrong. Now, that's true of our relationship with God. Well, it is likewise true that we cannot sin against God and it only impact our relationship with God. It will always inevitably interact with our relationship with others. So we've offended one another. Now, right away, we look at, at, at how we've offended one another and we will say using court terms like, well, I may have sinned misdemeanors, but you've had class X felonies. So I'm not as bad as you. Listen, it doesn't matter. In the high court of God, a sin's a sin. It's all missing the mark. And so we've sinned against one another. And we've offended one another. And so God renounces to us, we're all offenders. And then God says that He has offered forgiveness to every one of us. Like the story of the Master in here, He has let us go of our debts. We have been shown mercy. And it's a debt that we could have never paid. And that debt was paid on the cross of Calvary when Jesus said it was finished. Our, all of our struggles and all of our sin and all of our crimes against humanity were nailed to the cross of Jesus and they were forgiven. And the crimson sin was made as white as snow. And Jesus did that. And He offered forgiveness. And so now we're children of forgiveness. Now we have been lavished forgiveness and grace and mercy. And we've been given one job. Because we're all offenders, because we've been all offered forgiveness, therefore, there's a therefore, we must open our hearts to forgive others. We cannot do the unthinkable what the servant did. To be forgiven the greatest debt known to man in our own lives, 
to turn around and in small petty ways grab the throat of the servant next to us and shake them and threaten them that they better pay it or else. You see, when we recognize that we're offenders, we recognize to err is human, but to forgive is, help me out, divine. And as Christians, we cannot be unforgivable people. Might I go this far in saying, your, uh, the litmus test of your pure Christianity is tested on whether you can forgive others. Because might I add, if you can't forgive others, then you don't know what you were forgiven from. When we recognize how bad we were and how much God forgave us, then what would keep us from giving the small debt that is owed to us? Joseph exhibits it. Jesus teaches it. And now we must live it. So that brings us to the final aspect of this. And that is, we're reminded of the steps from our passage the steps towards forgiveness. How do we do it? Here's the practical part of the message. How did Joseph do it? What was the secret to his success? First of all, and we're going to go through these quickly. First of all, Joseph had to refocus the lens of how he saw his life. And we see it. Joseph says to his brothers, listen, it wasn't you who got me here. It was God. Oh, God allowed some things for you to, to allow them to happen in my life. God used you and your sinful acts for His good. But it's all God. God is the major player in this drama called Joseph's life. And for many of us, we've got to take our eyes off of the offender and onto God. Having your eyes on the one who hurts you does you no good. It doesn't help you any. It teaches you a lesson you already know. Sinful people are going to sin against others because that's why you sin, right? So you know that lesson already. There's a greater lesson to be learned. And that is that God is working in your life. And here's what you and I need to understand. Not a single thing of harm that has been done to you. And this is hard to swallow. This has been hard for me to swallow some of the things in my life that have taken place, things you know and things you don't know, for me to recognize God was in it. But I want to remind you of some good theology. And that is, there's not a single thing that happens to you without the express written consent of God. Meaning your trial, that wrong thing that that person did, that abuse that that person allowed you to experience, that, that hostile behavior did not catch God by surprise. God said, I'll let it happen. And he gave us an entire book of the Bible that tells us of the life of Job. That the devil comes and says, I want to do things. And God says, you can do this, but you can't do that. Well, why would a good God allow that? Because it allows God to work all things out for the good of those he loves. And so we have to trust we have to trust that God does all things well. Just as Joseph had to trust that there was a reason why I got thrown in a pit. There was a reason I got sold into slavery. There was a reason why I was alleged to be a rapist when I wasn't. There was a reason why I had to be a prisoner. Those are hard things to swallow. But when he takes his eyes off of his life and sees the, what God is doing, it can be glorious. 
The great preacher of preachers, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, once spoke of this with regards to providence. He said it's a lot like uh, needle points. He said from the bottom, it looks like a great big mess. From the top, it's a beautiful picture. He says, so it is with the providence of God. We look up from the bottom and we see frayed edges and mess and all of that. But he says, from the top, it's being produced a beautiful picture. Right now, we need to understand we're looking at the mess. But one day we will see the portrait and it will be beautiful. Refocus your lens. Number two, remind yourself of the connection you have with offenders. Some of you are walking away from a thanksgiving from hell, right? Someone said something and your blood is boiling. How could they say that? How could they do that? Take your eyes off of that and remind yourself that you've probably done something like that in the past. You've wronged someone. You've hurt someone. You've wanted to stick your foot in your mouth because words that have come out too quickly. Remind yourself that they're not the only offender in the room. That as you point to them, there's three fingers pointing back at you. Remind yourself of that. Remember, forgiveness is a command. And it makes sense. Listen to me, Christian. Very important. Forgiveness is not a suggestion. It's not an idea that God thinks you to think over. It's a command. When, Jesus, when, when Paul says to the church in Ephesus and Colossae, forgive as Christ forgave you, that forgive is in the imperative. Do it. There's no mixing around with it. There's no playing games with it. You forgive. Why? Because Christ forgave you. Now, why would God want Christians to forgive? So that we can be doormats? No. Because God in His creative power and knowledge of who we are as His creation knows that bitterness and unresolved anger will kill the person who's holding it more than it will hurt the person it's held against. And some of us are sitting there with anger and bitterness and we're sitting there and we're so angry at that person, can they feel it? No, they don't even know you're that way, right? You're dying inside and God wants to release you of that. God wants you to live an abundant life, not a bitter life. And so he says, forgive. Don't hold people to that anymore. Release them and release yourself from being worried about it. It makes sense. It will do your body good to forgive. But Tim, you don't know how bad it is. Well, these last two are for you. Request help from God. I get that there are some horrific things that are done to human beings, and some have experienced them here. You've got great pain. You've got great sorrow. And you're like, there's no way I can forgive. Ask God for help. We're going to study the book of James here in a couple weeks, here in in about a month, in the new year. And in the first week of James, we're going to learn if any one of you lacks wisdom, ask God, who gives generously without finding fault. He will give it to you. So if you lack wisdom, how do I forgive? God says, ask me for help, and I will give it for you. I'll show you. I'll empower you to be able to forgive. Ask God for help. Ask and seek the help of other believers. How can I forgive? How were you able to forgive? As we hear stories of how God does that in others' lives, we might be able to do it in our own. And finally, it's an important one. Reserve some time to heal before trusting again. This is important. 
Listen to me. When I say forgive, I am not saying let bygones be bygones and everything just gets tied up in a bow. Here's what, here's what didn't happen in Genesis 45. And Joseph sent off his brothers. And as they were far off, he announced, Hey, wait a minute, guys. Take Ephraim and Manasseh with you and you babysit them for a while. I'm not sure he could fully trust them yet. Remember, don't quarrel on the way. Don't be dumb. Don't do what you used to do. Did Joseph fully trust them? No. He said, this is what you will tell my father. Exactly this. Don't add your spin to it. Don't add your ideas to it. This is what I want you to tell him. And what that tells me is Joseph was not fully convinced that his brothers were trustworthy. And so he created boundaries, right? And there are some of us that today have to have boundaries because there have been offenders who can be forgiven, who should be forgiven by you, but maybe who can't be trusted. And because you forgive doesn't mean you trust. What it does is it does this. I will give you opportunities for you to rebuild your, tr- your trust. Or rebuild my trust in you. So maybe your spouse has done something wrong. And you say, well, Tim, what you're saying is, is I, I get together, I put a smile on my face. Well, God forgave me, so I forgive you, and we're all good. No, 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 no. What it means is I'm going to give my spouse some time to rebuild trust. That's what forgiveness is. I'm going to give time for them to show the error of their ways and that they're repentant. I'm going to give them opportunity. And I'm going to give them opportunity not only to do it, but to have my own heart be changed. Joseph must have been overjoyed when he saw that his brothers did exactly what he commanded them to do. And that the, how that relationship could start to be restored over a period of time. Because he did the hard step of forgiving first. Forgiving doesn't mean trust is reintroduced, but the opportunity is at least offered. So whatever you may be dealing with, whatever forgiveness you're struggling with, I I want you to do one thing before we close our time in prayer. Who do you need to forgive today? Who do you need to forgive? It might be because of just an argument you had on the way to church. Let me tell you, you will never find freedom in forgiving the big stuff if you don't find freedom in forgiving of the small stuff. I've come to learn how freeing it is to ask for people's forgiveness in the small stuff because it makes asking forgiveness in the big stuff a whole lot easier. Who do you need to forgive? Is it small? Is it big? Is it as big as Joseph's issues? It might be. Seek forgiveness. Be the initiator. Show love, grace, and mercy as God has shown you and give opportunities for people to rebuild the trust that they need in your life so that you can be like God, so you can be like Joseph, so you can show the gospel to the world around you of a sinner who knows what it's like to be forgiven and now who forgives as a result. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we thank you for this time in your word. We thank you for the lesson that not only Joseph has taught us, but our Savior Jesus has taught us. And boy, doesn't he have the right to teach us that truth. The one who forgave us of such a great debt now tells us we must forgive. 
And so, Lord, I pray we know that this does not come from who we are as humans, but it comes from the Spirit that lives inside of us. So empower us by your Spirit to forgive others. Lord, I pray for the one who's never received forgiveness from you for their sins, that today they would do that. And if, Lord, they don't know how to, that they would stop and ask someone, how do I receive forgiveness from God? They would stop at the Welcome Center. They would grab the person next to them and ask that question so that they may know what forgiveness from the Almighty God of the universe feels like and how it changes us as people. Lord, remind us that You have forgiven us so that we might extend forgiveness to those who have wronged us. It will be hard. It goes against many of the things that we feel, Lord, but we know You only want the best for us. So we'll follow Your command and we will do it with joy in our hearts. And we know, Lord, that when we do what is right by faith, we recognize that You will allow good results to come. And so we give those results to You knowing that You know best. And we love you. And thank you for the forgiveness we've encountered through your son, Jesus Christ. Now send us forth in a world that will need our forgiveness. In the myriad of moments of our lives where people will wrong us, let us be quick to forgive as you were. We love you for it, Lord. And now ask for your blessing and our fellowship, we ask. In Christ's name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen.